0: Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. glad you could find a few minutes to spend with us today. We have a big show, so let's get right to it. Anishinaabe singer-songwriter Ansley Simpson was nominated for two 2018 Indigenous Music Awards and won Best New Artist. On November 6th and November 12th, she appears as part of the 13-episode Amplify series on APTN. And the show has a fascinating premise. Invite an indigenous songwriter to find a piece of indigenous inspiration, whether it be a book, an art piece, a belief, etc., and then write a song about it. Topics covered include the environment climate change, the foster care system, two-spirit identities, residential schools, healing through art, slavery, and indigenous resistance. Each show is a platform for indigenous songwriters and indigenous knowledge keepers to share ideas about a specific topic close to them and then create music out of it. And best of all, each show ends with a music video of the song that was created based on the theme of the episode. Also featured in Ansley's episode is author Harold Johnson discussing his acclaimed book, Firewater, how alcohol is killing my people and yours. I've started this interview with a congratulations to Ansley Simpson. I have been starting a lot of these interviews by asking people uh, what they're doing to pass the time in isolation, but I know what you've been up to. Congratulations on the record label. Thank you. And oh. I love it's Gigiway. Is that right? Am I pronouncing it's that correctly? Gigiway. Uh, Gigiway.
1: Gigiway. Yeah.
0: And and it means to speak in a loud voice in Ojibwe. Uh, Tell me why it was important to uh, call it that, and then tell me what you hope to do with the record label.
1: Yeah. Um, Yes, I've been sort of thinking about how I want to be a part of the music industry as an indigenous person for a really long time. Um, and I just decided finally that I was tired of looking for a representation that that met my needs, and I decided, you know what, I'm just going to start it and see where it goes from there. And I and I was thinking, you know, what what is a phrase that uh, really sums up my experience of my friends and colleagues as Indigenous musicians? Um, and honestly, it's that whatever we do, even if we have the quiet, subtle notes, it has this loudness to it. It speaks volumes. It it echoes across, you know, the nation, all the different nations. So um, when I came up with Gigi Wei, I decided, you know, that's perfect. We sing and speak with loud voices, so this is what, this is going to be the name.
0: <laughs> and you've been a musician for many years, but you only started songwriting about seven years ago, seven eight years ago. How did you transition into writing?
1: Yeah, I grew up in a really musical family, which I talk a lot about in the series, Um, and about seven years ago, after the birth of my daughter, who's now nine, I kind of decided, you know what, I want to do something that um, really shows her that she can do anything that she wants to at any point in her life, you know, that kind of cliché. And uh, for me, that was writing songs. Uh, I never expected to be able to sing them or or to have an audience that would want to listen to them, but I just wanted to sit down and be able to write a song that I liked from beginning to end. Um, so that started things, and yeah, it's really gone places since then.
0: So we see the results of this, and in, in fascinatingly so, in Amplify, uh, interesting to see the creative process, to hear about the reasoning behind a songwriter and why they write a song. And there's a great deal of of pain behind the song that you showcase in Amplify. And you talk in a very open way about struggles with alcohol, how you started writing this song just two years after you had stopped drinking. What can you tell me about that process and, and laying yourself bare? in that way, uh, both on television and in the song.
1: Yeah, it was a really amazing process to be a part of. And kudos to Shane Balcourt for making me feel really comfortable in going to those really vulnerable and dark places. I'm sleeping as it is. The night comes out to swallow me whole. There's no more whiskey keeping peace There's no more trouble than my soul When I first uh, started writing this song with, with this series, um, I was in a really challenging spot in my life. Um, that two years sobriety point for me hit harder than any other points in the process. It was like everything finally caught up to me and um, this exhaustion that I had managed in different ways in my life or distracted myself away from and the emotion just kind of hit me all at once. And I found myself really reaching out for anything to, to keep me sober. Um, and that's when I found the book uh, Harold Johnson wrote called Firewater um, and at the time it hit, it hit every part of what I needed to hear, um, to maintain that sobriety and to make sense of where this, this feeling, this heaviness, this darkness was really coming from. Um, so being able to sit down with the team and actually dive into it and, uh, was oddly easier, um, than I expected. Uh, and now in hindsight, I'm like, Ooh, I got really vulnerable there. Oh no. And I'm kind of panicking. <laughs> It'll be fine. But yeah, now it's hitting me on that
0: level. Yeah, I guess there's always that hindsight, right? In the moment, it feels right. And then you second guess it. But I'll tell you, I've seen the show. It's wonderful. Thank you. You put your anxieties to rest.
1: Okay, (laughs) thank you. I know it's
0: easier said than done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate
0: that. You're listening to my interview with singer-songwriter Ansley Simpson. How do you tend to write? Do you write on guitar? I know that... Uh, you also you play other instruments, but do you do you write on guitar?
1: I do. Um, the guitar has been my instrument uh, that I play by ear for for a long time. I was a classically trained piano player for a really long while, and that um, developed a whole different set of skills. And I could never really attach it to my creative side. So guitar was the one for me that I could just pick up and hear where the chords were and hear the melodies. So I often start. I bring a writing book with me wherever I go um, and I write, uh, I write as much as I possibly can. During the pandemic, that's been a lot less for sure, um, but I'm always writing. And then at some point, it's funny, some songs start based off of a lyric with a melody uh, and sometimes just stay there and I never put them to anything other than just vocal and word. And then other songs, I start with a guitar melody or a guitar progression in mind, and I try to fit, you know, words that come out um, that join well with that. So, yeah, it's honestly, it is a really interesting process writing songs. And it's so exciting that people get to see all the different styles of songwriting through this um, through this project and just, yeah, how it's done, how much work goes into it.
0: Well, it's, I think it was Gordon Lightfoot that said that writing a song is 5% inspiration and 90% perspiration.
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> it's so true and I didn't write songs for so long because I thought I kind of bought into that idea that if you write if you're a songwriter it just kind of falls out of you and you just write it and you just sit down and yeah that that happens but very rarely for me anyway and most of it it takes you know writing and rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it and sometimes that's months
0: you think that you didn't write on the piano because it didn't feel as organic you studied classical piano uh it it didn't trigger the the emotion in you perhaps it was more I don't know clinical is the word but it was more studied than playing on guitar?
1: Yes. It's where I learned my my practice methods. It's where I learned my technique, like that kind of thing. Um, But I didn't feel, you know, when you're when you're in classically trained piano, if you throw down some sort of improvisation, you get in trouble. You know, that's that's dox you marks. That's not gonna get you where you need to go. So, um, you know, you have to almost shut off that side of your brain and your, your emotion can come out in the dynamics, it can come out in the, you know, the feel of the piece to a point, but even that has pretty rigid, you know, parameters around it, you know, for as far as tempo and feel goes, you're just supposed to emulate it as best as possible, putting a little bit of yourself into it. So guitar, I get to throw my entire self into it. Um, Yeah, which I really enjoy doing and it's like, um, it's more physical in this way. Um, I can stand, I'm kind of a restless person, so being able to stand and do something is just great, yeah.
0: Well, I have read that you have struggled with anxiety in the past. What role does music play uh, in that?
1: Yeah, it plays an interesting role. Anxiety has always been with me. Honestly, for as far as, as long as I can remember and at different points, it's been much stronger. Um, And uh, initially it was the reason why I didn't perform or couldn't sing in front of a small audience of people or couldn't sing without drinking. Um, And so, but I just kind of decided one day if I'm going to be anxious and that's going to be a given, I'm still going to do things. And I started to just do it even if I was anxious, um, allow myself to shake. I used to do these performance uh exercises with a small group of people and i would be uh, everybody was just in tears because i was shaking so hard at the end of it and my voice was quivering so badly it was painful but i worked through it um i allowed myself to get messy i guess in that way and i kind of allow myself to get messy in my lyrics as well um i I allow i allow that sort of rawness that i'm feeling to come out because i've learned (laughs) that I'm not the only one that feels that way. And that that's the, those are the moments in songs that people really resonate with and feel like they've been seen or heard. So they connect with that.
0: I interviewed Steve Earle a little while ago and he told me that he sees songwriting as a machine for empathy. Right. So he's got a song called Sweet Little Trucker, I think. And it's about being away, being on the road. And he said this weird thing happened where he bumped into Johnny Cash and Johnny Cash said, man, I love that song. That is a great song. And then a trucker came up and said, I love I love that song. He said, well, what do these two people have in common? Well, they're both on the road and they miss their kids. And so I think that songs that connect on that kind of level with people will always be the ones that that stay in their minds.
1: Yeah, so true, so true. Mm -hmm. And that's what I I hope to do, at least with uh, the songs that I write, is to write them in a way that people can find an element of themselves in it, no matter what the story is that I am saying.
0: We're midway through my interview with Ansley Simpson. She is a singer, a songwriter, and she's also the subject of one episode of a show called Amplify on APTN. You can see that show on November 12th, That's when it will air in Ojibwe, and then on November 6th, it airs in English. With a strong cast of indigenous musicians, this new series is an exciting journey into the personal lives and inspiration of some of the country's most innovative rising stars. Combining personal stories with indigenous history and culture, each episode gives you an intimate look into their musical creation process. Let's continue my conversation with Ansley Simpson. to do
1: hmm that's it's it's a good question because I don't think about that until until I'm releasing it or until it's out in the world I think initially when I write it I write it for it's selfish I guess I write it for myself I write it to make sure that I I feel okay with it and then I write it for um, indigenous people my nation I'm Anishinaabe my family's from Alderville First Nation so I try to write it and With them in mind and often that takes you know consulting with people to make sure that if i've used any traditional elements in my songs that i've done it in a good way um that's not misrepresenting or over saying or over sharing something that shouldn't be shared in that way and then i imagine it being out in the world uh and i think you know every songwriter wants wants their song to be somewhat transformative, if we can be so bold. You know, yeah. you hope that it moves people. You hope that it is something more than, than just passively consumed in the background. Um, you know, I, I hope that, that people really listen, and I hope this for all indigenous musicians, black musicians, especially marginalized musicians in particular, um, listen to their lyrics, you know, deep dive, give them a, a really solid listen because their stories aren't the ones that are normally told.
0: I have to ask you what you did to get grounded so you couldn't go see the Ramones. Oh it's, my god. It, it seems like something <laughs> that left a big mark on you.
1: <laughs> it kind of did. I mean, come on. There wasn't I I'm I don't even, you know, that the sad part is I don't even really remember. It was most likely related to I d- I decided what my curfew was. It was not the same as what my parents decided. And also, I never actually got myself home at my chosen curfew time even. So yeah, my parents were very, (laughs) they tolerated a lot. I put them through a lot. Um, Yes, so I'm sure, I'm pretty sure it was car related. I just did not come home. (laughs) But I got to see the entire last summer tour of the Grateful Dead. I saw Jerry Garcia's last show. That, yeah, that was for me one of the, uh, yeah, one of my favorite moments in life.
0: Well, he kind of uh, influenced your guitar picking style a little bit, right?
1: Yeah, I'd yeah. say I'd say more than I ever thought. I people ask me who I'm influenced by a lot, and I can't really ever come up with something. But honestly, um, harmonies, Grateful Dead. I feel they they have really fun harmonies. They have really fun you know, chord progressions that you don't expect at times. And they embed a story into a lot of their songs. You know, their their songwriter did a really great job of that. So, yeah. Yeah, there's some similarities there, maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe so. <laughs> a
1: little bit? I okay. do <laughs>
0: Sure. So one final thing about Amplify, the television show. Um, did doing that show feel different than the way that you normally work? It's a, it's a, it's a different situation. You're put in a different situation. Uh, did it feel different?
1: Um, I my comfort level. I could really just forget that they were there. It was great that way. Um, my team for that song. I had Simone Schmidt from Fiverr. She produced it, or they produced it, and then I had. Heather Kirby on bass and Annalise Nerona uh, was the sound engineer and we did it on tape, which I've always wanted to do. So uh, my team was so solid and I felt really comfortable with them um, that it just went really, really smoothly. And I could again, sort of forget that they were there. Uh, at times, you know, I'd finish doing and take and then turn and there's a camera right in my face and sort of startles you. But Mostly, it was comfortable enough, and I mean, when I go into a recording studio i I sort of take the space, so I smudge it, I make sure that um, all of my senses feel like i'm i 'm there, you know, and then, yeah, there was no difference for that. It felt very real that way, yeah
0: and recording on tape it 's different, right it sounds oh, yeah. different it 's analog, uh, so it it 's got a warmer feel, I think. Uh, And and I guess the process is different. You're not starting and stopping a hundred times and dropping in a thing and you can't go back later on and say, "Um, I think there's a sibilant S sound in the second verse. Can you take that out? You can't do that. Kind of what you get is what you get. And I think it's more organic that way.
1: I agree. And that's why I wanted to work with it, um, especially for this project because it felt like it really needed an organic feel. Uh, Simona was saying earlier on in the project that tape is like another another musician in the room, uh, so it has this persona unto itself, and we just really worked with that. The take that we used uh, and that you hear in the final recording, my voice is—you know—it cracks at certain points. That's there, but those elements we decided um, really work. You know, this is not a this is not a pretty you know, precious song that I'm singing about, it has, you know, this guts to it and this rawness to it. So the tape works really beautifully and adds this like little, this mellow kind of component to it or, or yeah, it, I just love it. If if I had my way and if it was easy enough and if we had like the recording budgets of the 90s or 70s, I'd be doing tape all the time. <laughs>
0: That was my interview with Ansley Simpson. Remember to check her out on November sixth and November twelfth on the new APTN series Amplify. Stay with us. This time I'm gonna kick that football clear to the moon. Ah! If you are a fan of Charlie Brown and The Peanuts, you don't want to miss the next interview. Simon Beecroft zooms in from his home in London, England to tell us all about The Peanuts Book, a visual history of the iconic comic strip. It's his new book. You can find it in brick-and-mortar stores. You can find it online. But it tells you everything that you've ever wanted to know about Charlie Brown. But maybe we're afraid to ask. I began this interview with Simon who was live via Zoom from his home in London, England, uh, asking if there were similarities between the character of Charles Schultz, the cartoonist, and Charlie Brown. Both were the sons of barbers, both liked to play sports, and yes, both had a crush on a red-headed girl. Here's what Simon had to say. He
2: did kind of waver between accepting and acknowledging that he was Charlie Brown. He was very very similar. Um, And then sometimes he would draw back from that a little bit and suggest the differences and say, no, 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 there's no, there's no direct equivalent. But um, I think probably he's, it's interesting that his, when he was at school, and he's always had this thing that he was a bit of a kind of the eternal loser, Mm -hmm. a little bit like Charlie Brown is kind of lovable loser. Um, And at school, um, he, so he always played up, as I said, he played up his kind of the humble nature of his, of him. And he played up the fact that he's no great thinker. You know, he, he was, he, you know, and, but actually at school, he was very smart and, and bright. And he was um, put forward a year. So he was put into the next year above. And he obviously then became the youngest person in that year and also the shortest so he and he sort of struggled somewhat and I think that and he acknowledged this that some of his kind of um issues of feeling a little you know out of sorts stemmed from this time where he was just surrounded by all these kids that were bigger than him well how long did it take for you to be able to
0: connect the biographical aspects of his life with the comics there are an astounding amount of strips I think it's seventeen thousand eight hundred and ninety-seven <laughs> strips. But how long, as you were looking at the clips, did you start to see parallels in the two, Charlie Brown and Charles Schultz?
2: He, I mean, he um, he definitely uh, put some very obvious ones in. As you mentioned, uh, both their fathers are barbers, um, and Schulz was a um, was very very close to his father. And respected him enormously, I think, um, and respected his trade, respected his father's application, the way that his father worked hard, had this, you know, local barber store, and had regular customers, and was kind of this solid man that went into work every day. And in fact, that's what Schultz himself did and kind of modelled himself on that. Not the same field, of course, but. Schultz had a very good work ethic and he would go to his desk every day. You had to if you were doing a daily strip. But there's lots of other little kind of smaller, less noticeable um, things that he put in. One of the things that I I found fascinating, and I didn't know this at all, was that his father was a great whistler. So he was able to whistle really well. And so was um, Charles Schultz and so is Charlie Brown. And in fact, quite a few of the characters. Whistling, it's a little bit of a kind of buried theme. It's in there and, and characters often do whistle. And there's a nice story about Schultz, which is that he was a, uh, after the war, he, he kind of had a music appreciation society. He really got into buying gramophone records and learning all about classical music. And he had a little kind of music club with his friends and they would just enjoy themselves by like whistling a piece of classical music and then the others had to tell what that piece was.
0: You're listening to my interview with Simon Beecroft, author of The Peanuts Book, a visual history of the iconic comic strip, in stores now.
2: But there's, I mean, there's there's so many parallels. I mean, but he, interestingly, I think he he puts himself into more than just Charlie Brown. So I think he he splits his character up into a few of the characters.
0: He hated the name Peanuts, it was forced upon him by the, the syndicate that was distributing uh, his uh, strip. Why did he hate it and what did he want to call it?
2: So he wanted to call it a Little, well he actually he wanted to call it, I think, um, he wanted to call it a Good Old Charlie uh, Brown. Um, his, the strip he had done immediately prior to Peanuts was called Little Folks. And he, he quite liked that too. Um, he did not like Peanuts. He thought that Peanuts trivialised what he was doing. And I think that at the time, he he saw two things. He saw, firstly, that he was going to write a strip that was in some ways quite serious. So he was going to put a lot of, it was going to be funny, but it was going to have an edge to it. And of course it did. It did and it does. Um, so he found the name Peanuts to be demeaning. He also knew... As I said that this was going to be his life 's work. This was not something he was going to just do for a, f- a few years and then move on. He knew somehow that this was his what he was going to do for his life, so he wanted it to be to have the right name. It really mattered to him, and I think he felt that the execs at um, the newspaper syndicate didn 't have the same you know awareness that he had, and they plucked this name. I think it was a name that had somehow been uh, applied to what you would call little kids in the gallery of a theater or He's something. gallery, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think that he, I don't, I think that Charles Schultz said, well, who, who calls kids peanuts? I'm not aware of that <laughs> being of that common a, a name. So he was really kind of bemused by this name. I have to say, I think the name works. Mm. And I think if he'd called it anything else, it just, I don't think, I think it would have dated. I mean, Lil Folks seems to me to be very dated. Yeah, that yes. is, to me, that's really sounds like another era completely. Peanuts somehow is kind of timeless.
0: The character of Charlie Brown, we think of him as a fully formed character, as uh, someone that we grew up reading. But it took about 10 years to get Charlie Brown right. Uh, in Charles Schultz's mind, what kind of changes did the character of Charlie Brown go through?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. He in the first few strips and the first few um, months or years, uh, Charlie Brown is a is sort of a different character. He can be quite. He's not quite as kind of browbeaten as uh, later on. Uh, I mean, there's reasons for that, I think. But um, he he was quite a kind of. Um, he gave as good as he got. First mm-hmm. of all, so he would quite often just unprovoked provoke the other characters and he would kind of run out run away shouting i get my kicks <laughs> you know he, he just had this kind of more slightly more irrepressible spirit right. that then settles down and i think the thing that i think the thing that probably caused the greatest change in charlie brown and when when you really see the true charlie brownness of charlie brown coming in is when lucy is, is introduced mm. and it's with the introduction of lucy who is this kind of, I mean, there were previous girl characters in it, of course, but, and and, and they were sort of somewhat, um, I mean, they were sort of somewhat, uh, you know, teasing, and they had some of the elements of Lucy, but Lucy just became this kind of uber nemesis of Charlie Brown, and, you know, it just went to a different level, and Charlie, and she just, Lucy just seemed to kind of cut Charlie Brown down to size somehow, and she was able to do it in such a sometimes such a kind of horrifying way, (laughs) that's, I think, when you really get the Charlie Brown that we all know.
0: Charlie Brown! Oh, Charlie Brown! I can't believe it. She must think I'm the most stupid person alive. Come on, Charlie Brown. I'll hold the ball and you kick it. I began this segment of the interview by asking if the introduction of Lucy as Charlie Brown's nemesis and the full realization of Charlie as a kind of sad sack character, is that what made the script more relatable and therefore more successful?
2: I think that must be the case. I know that Schultz certainly, you know, believes that um, in, in life, we're not all winners. We don't, and even if we we win, we don't win all the time. Mm-hmm. So the the experience of, um, not defeat exactly, but the experience of life not going your way all the time is a very common one. And I think his insight into into humanity, in a sense, his insight was that this is a very common experience, and I do think that absolutely did chime with people and. Was one of the elements that, well, made it stand out for a start. I mean, you couldn't be further away from super, you know, the world of superheroes or, um, you know, mis- the kind of mischievous kids that they often had in comic strips, uh, uh, you know, uh, in in cartoons of that time. Um, these kids who, who spent their time kind of, you know, discussing and and uh, sort of talking to each other. Um, about all sorts of things that were really the concerns of adults you know there was this sort of sense of kind of life is not going to serve it's not going (laughs) to kind of give you any huge breaks and all you can do is just kind of settle into it get used to it kind of try and keep moving on and that's that's an unusual it's it's definitely not children kind of having a fall and, and going, ah. It's, it's a whole different kind of experience. I think a whole different rea- um, response to a kind of systemic <laughs> kind of failure.
0: Snoopy became one of the standout stars of this strip, but he began just as a dog. I mean, as a, as a, a dog character, kind of a stereotypical kind of thing. Why did Schultz end up changing him into i think arguably the most sophisticated member uh mm. of the cast.
2: Oh yeah for sure. It's interesting you're absolutely right he it, Snoopy is a dog a puppy in the beginning and and walks on four legs and doesn't um we have no access to his inner thoughts um he doesn't sort of speak um at first, uh, so he, yeah, he, and then he kind of, it is really, that's one of the most interesting things is just how that how that dog gets up on his hind legs um, <laughs> and starts revealing his thoughts.
0: Learns to type.
2: Learns to type. Typewriter. And, you know, has this absolutely incredibly rich imaginative life. I mean, he he, it's interesting, I think so few of the other characters escape the neighbourhood, so they are very much they live their lives within that, you know, suburban neighborhood. Um, Snoopy's really the only one who, who goes on these incredible flights of fantasy. I mean, he can be in world war one Europe, you know, he can be flying in, in world war one planes. He can be, uh, as you said, like famous, he can be a world famous author, yep. you know, world famous anything. Um, uh, he, yeah he's how does he do that i mean i think other it's interesting the other other cartoonists were absolutely astounded by some of the things that he did and i think one of the things that really was clever was having him sit on the top of his doghouse yeah. such a simple thing it doesn't look like anything but just the ability to sort of do that it i mean i think if you're you're looking at it, if you're thinking about it in a realistic sense how strange is that that he could sit on the peak on the peak of, it doesn't make
0: any <laughs> sense yeah
2: <laughs> it's no sense at all and yet you know this is the i think this is the other side of of schultz's genius he absolutely understood the logic of comics and how you can do those things in comics you can't do them in hardly any other art form so he just he took that he took those opportunities and that's what i love about him he can do realism but he can also do this, I mean, he can do slapstick as well, and he can do all that kind of stuff. And, like, we all love seeing Charlie Brown's clothes coming off as the ball gets thrown at him on the baseball mound. You know, he can do incredible kind of comic book feats. But, yeah, Snoopy was, I think, his, and he acknowledged that. And then sending Snoopy into space in, you know, in 69 was, I think, one of the greatest things he did.
0: You're listening to my interview with Simon Beecroft. He's the author of the Peanuts book, a visual history of the iconic comic strip. I love that there's sort of an aspirational idea behind the Peanuts. Uh, Charlie Brown never got to kick the ball, but he never stopped trying to kick the ball. And I think that's kind of the underlying message that goes along with this. You have Snoopy who could do anything, go to space, go to do whatever. There is just something that seemed to fit the uh, optimism of the time, I think, that uh, these comics were being written uh, that seemed to, to really catch kind of the, the essence of the zeitgeist uh, that, was, that was in the air. Um, and and I, I think that's one of the, the keys to success for Charles Schultz and the Peanuts uh, uh, strip.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think he was, I mean, we think of it both as quite a timeless strip now but I do think it was very much of its time, too. And at the time, it was ahead of its time. So I do, I think that Schultz was was incredibly, he had his radar out, yeah. I think, culturally. Uh, he was very attuned to what was going on. I mean, as I said, he wasn't a great traveler. He, he didn't particularly, you know, he was very happy being at home. But he allowed, I think he, spun like a sponge, he, he did nevertheless sort of soak up everything that was going on. And, you know, we've got a few spreads in the book that really cover how Peanuts, how the strip reflected its times. And that's one thing I was interested to learn about when I was researching the book. I hadn't realised quite, I think I'd always, you know, known all the things that happen within the world of the neighbourhood, uh, Lucy's psychiatry stand, which of course is was actually quite a prescient thing to be observing. I mean, he turned the classic children's lemonade, Stand where kids have made their own homemade lemonade and they're selling it for a quarter or whatever and he turned it into something where she's in the same kind of setup but she's selling you know psych- psychiatry um, which of course was very you know at, at that time when people were beginning to kind of you know get increasingly interested in you know, exploring their own and understanding their own psychology and kind of Freudian approach and people having analysts.
0: May
1: I help you? I'm in sad shape. Wait a minute. Before you begin, I must ask that you pay in advance. Five cents, please.
0: I know that there is a straight line between the Peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes, Garfield, Dilbert, all those strips that came afterwards. But it is remarkable to me when you start looking at the numbers. 2600 newspapers around the world carried peanuts at a time when people used newspapers, unlike today. Uh, and they had a daily readership of over 355 million people. I mean, it is extraordinary. I, I, I don't think that there will ever be another comic strip. And maybe there has never been a comic strip that has had that kind of impact.
2: No, I think it, you're right. I think it broke all the records. Um... I mean, the success was so wild and worldwide. I mean, we're talking, uh, I mean, I, of course, I was reading it in newspapers in the UK, in my childhood in the seventies. Um, and, and I know that people around the world were having similar experiences. And the the way that the strip resonates in places as far afield as Japan, um, it's it 's huge in Italy still, and in you know all sorts of other parts parts of the world it it just became a worldwide phenomenon and of course a huge part of that was was snoopy mm-hmm. um for sure so, I mean Snoopy was the superstar of the strip um and definitely uh, you know took it to that stratospheric level um but yeah i mean he he broke he broke all the moulds. he broke all the records i get that Charles Schultz wanted to
0: control the entire thing. But when he retired, when he said, this is it, I'm not going to do this anymore, why didn't somebody else come in and say, I'm gonna pick it up? Why wasn't there a protege in place?
2: It was absolutely his ruling that when he stopped doing that strip, nobody would Mm. continue it. And he was very, like I said, he he, he, he was a very um, determined person. Um, he, he came over as very kind of mild, but actually he had a steely, strong will. And that was one of his absolute, you know, rulings that nobody would, uh, continue the strip off after him. And I don't know whether you know the story. Um, but I, th- I find it just incredible that he, he, he did the last few strips and, um, on the day. That Schultz himself passed away. It was in the night, in the nighttime. Um, the that that was the the day, the morning that the final strip appeared in the newspapers. So he he his life literally ended when the strip ended. And to be so so connected in that in that way is just another, I think, aspect of how how amazing it
0: is. That was Simon Beecroft, author of The Peanuts Book, A Visual History of the Iconic Comic Strip. You can find that book wherever you buy fine books, in brick-and-mortar stores or online, and I'll tell you, it is lavish, and it'll make a great present for the peanut lover in your life. My thanks to Simon and to my other guest, Ansley Simpson. Remember to check her out on November 6th and on November 12th on the APTN series Amplify. As always, though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. I hope you had fun. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.